Hello, everyone. This is the first episode of the Creative Minds podcast in 2021, presented by myself, Callum Hughes. This episode will focus on the pros and cons of social media, and we will also be touching on wider smartphone use as well. There's no doubt that social media and smartphone use has helped in some respects during the pandemic to ensure that we remain connected whilst we can't see many of our loved ones and friends in the physical sense. But there are also, of course, downsides as well. The aim of this podcast is to improve your mental well-being and to provide knowledge and advice on how you can use social media platforms and your smartphone in general in both a productive and positive way. I'm joined by a very special guest from America on this episode. Her name is Jordan Young. Jordan is a research associate in the psychology department at the University of Pennsylvania, a private Ivy League research university ranked number six in Forbes's list of America's top colleges in 2019. She's also one of Dr. Melissa Hunt's co-authors on the groundbreaking journal titled No More FOMO, Limiting Social Media Decreases Loneliness and Depression. Before we get started, I wanted to say that I hope you're all keeping well, whether you're listening over on Jordan's side in America or over here where there's been further restrictions implemented within the last few days or anywhere else in general where COVID-19 is having an impact on you. I also wanted to share this powerful statement that I came across before I invite Jordan onto the podcast, which is, the less you are connected with human beings in a deep, empathic way, the less you're really getting the benefits of a social interaction. The more superficial it is, the less likely it's going to cause you to feel connected, which is something we all need. And that was pointed out by Alexandra Hamlet, a clinical psychologist at the Child Mind Institute. So I'm just going to invite Jordan in now. Hi, Jordan. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Good. I think we've had a bit more success with that second attempt instead of the first attempt. Yeah, definitely. No, I'm glad the audio is working now. Yeah, that's that's good. So first of all, just before we get started, I wanted to say thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us all the way from what I thought was Pennsylvania, but you've now moved to Connecticut. Is that correct? Yeah, COVID has caused me, like many others, to have to relocate, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. So before we do get started, how, how have you been keeping with everything that's gone on since last year and having to kind of adapt and evolve your... Uh, work methods and and how you're coping as well on a personal level yeah no I mean I've been doing as good as I can I mean like connecting with people over zoom call thank god for technology and like social media to be able to keep us connected um I feel like without that I'd kind of I'd probably be going crazy um other than that I mean like the kind of lab work that we do fortunately it's not like bench lab work I'm actually able to do a lot from home so I'm able to you know still be productive um, other than that, just, you know, spending a lot of time in the kitchen and with my dogs and just trying to keep myself occupied and sane, I feel like. Yeah, no, that, that's good. So before we explore the hot topic of social media and the causal links it has with issues such as depression and loneliness, since it's 
meteoric rise in recent years. Um, I was intrigued to know what inspired you to go into psychology in general and furthermore, what attracted you to like, study this specific field as well? Yeah, so um, psychology, I mean, like, it's what I studied when I was in school and I was uh, back like an undergrad back at Penn. Um, and when I was trying to pick my major there, I noticed I took intro to psychology because it's like one of those, you know, general education classes that like most freshmen take. And I was like, oh, this could be interesting. And I actually, I really liked it. I remember um, my professor just was super interesting. I loved her. I took upper level seminars with her once I got towards my junior and senior year. Um, I thought the material was really interesting. I liked learning about individual differences and I was really interested in the studies because we were learning a lot about the research behind it, not just the theories. Um, so I decided to go with psych as my major. And then I got introduced to like the whole field of psychology research, which is where I met Dr. Hunt um, because we had a research requirement. So I signed up for her class to get my research requirement fulfilled. And then the rest is kind of history. We just, we started working together on this social media project, um, which was actually, was completely not what I was expecting to work on. I joined her lab and it's a clinical psychology lab studying abnormal psychology. And um, the bulk of her work focuses on, you know, CBT and um, clinical treatments for um, GI disorders. So like, you know, gastrointestinal issues, things like that. Um, and I thought it was going to be a really great experience to learn from a clinician who's been in the field for years and has extensive knowledge in this area. And then I came in and she was like, well, we have all these different studies we want to work on, but there's also this social media area that I think I want to explore. I know nothing about the literature. I know you guys know nothing about the literature. There really isn't any research out there, but like, we're going to do something. And yeah. me and a couple of other students, we were like, okay, we have no idea what this project is going to be, but like, sure, we'll do it. Um, yeah. And then it just kind of took off from there and I've been doing it ever since. Um, no, that's I mean, really interesting. It ended up being really interesting for all of us. Yeah, that's that's good. Before we get on to the, the studying aspects and the research that you've done, um, I was intrigued around why you went into psychology. So was there anyone in particular that inspired you with either within your family or wider society or is it something you kind of just stumbled upon from studying various different things yeah I mean uh I'm the only one in my family who does like you know academia and research like this my the rest of my family does stuff that's totally different um I think I don't know I mean I just I got exposed to these concepts in college and like being able to do this kind of research and I think I mean, I love psychology and I think like I studied it in undergrad, I think it's super, super fascinating. And I think more what I'm drawn to though is like this topic and this area of research that I just happen to be doing within the psychology department. And I mean, yeah. studying social media and technology, it's something that touches on so many different domains. So like there's people in a lot of different departments who do this kind of research. Um, but I think what's nice about being in the psychology department specifically, at least what I've liked is more the people that I've gotten to work with, like Dr. Hunt and other mentors and um, collaborators who I've been able to work with at Penn and I've been able to, you know, um, do some research with. I think that's been the best part for me. So and that's like what drew me to it and what kept me here. So. Yeah, definitely. I like what you said there about the fact it, it's pretty similar to me, especially on my dad's side of the family, the only kind of academic ones, whereas everyone else is across the complete opposite side of the spectrum. Do you feel like it's because, I suppose it applies to both of us because we're a similar age, that we've grown up in a different era and generation where although in terms of a timeline, there's not a massive amount of years, but so much has changed within a short space of time. I mean, 
I'm sure there's a generational difference. Just for me personally, I love school. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a total nerd. I absolutely love school. <laughs> I love learning. So like, that's why I stayed in it. Um, <laughs> and my parents did not love school. So they got out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, I'm sure there's a generational difference too. And like, you know, less of an emphasis on like just graduating and getting into the job market right away. But that I think had less of, to do with it for me and more of just the fact that I really like learning. Yeah, no, that, that's good. And um, I suspect as well with the way that social media and technology is evolving, uh, that the likes of yourself and Dr. Hunt are going to become quite prominent figures without putting too much pressure on you there in, in society over the next few years. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I know that you're now a research associate for the well-respected Dr. Hunt, who I believe is the head of psychology at University yeah, of Pennsylvania. So she's the associate director for clinical training. Um, so she right. like essentially she works with the head the head director for clinical training and they coordinate all of the training aspects for our doctoral students who um, are going on to get a clinical um, a clinical psychology PhD and then they go right, on to become okay. clinicians like Dr. Hunt. Okay, that makes sense. So I have had a brief look in terms of your career path so far that's led you to become a research associate. But if you wouldn't mind talking us through your journey so far with what you've studied and what you hope to go on to either study further or what you want to hopefully achieve in the coming years as well. Yeah, definitely. So um, like I was kind of saying before, I um, got into, I've, well, I've been doing research for a long time. Like before I went to college, I worked in a cancer research lab actually, which was like totally different. Um, but so like, I knew that I liked the general, the process of research, the logic behind it, being able to ask questions and then kind of go about trying to find the answer in a very logical way. Um, I got into psychology research because of my major, what I was studying in undergrad. And it was kind of just, I feel like it was just this like unexpected natural progression. Um, like I found Dr. Hunt's class and it was a year before I had to fulfill the requirement, but I was like, oh, okay, like I'll send her an email and see if she'll take me early and like I'll apply and because you have to apply to get into the class and like see what happens and she ended up taking me and it just kind of took off from there um so yeah and then um once I got into her lab I really really liked it and that was my junior year um so I asked her if she would consider mentoring me for my honors thesis um during my senior year at Penn and she was like oh yeah of course that'd be really interesting and that's when I ended up doing a follow-up study to the social media investigation where I actually looked at dating applications um which was really really interesting and then when I graduated, I was like, okay, I really want to get my ultimate goal is I want to get my PhD. I want to continue, you know, doing this kind of research and I want to become a professor like Dr. Hunt. I want to mentor other researchers and I want to, you know, put out this original research into the world and keep asking these questions. Um, yeah. But when I graduated, I was like, I want to get a little bit more research experience before I apply, just, you know, make sure this is really what I want to do. Um, so I asked her if I could stay on and continue to work on these projects. And she was like, yeah, sure. We're getting a lot of traction from the social media study. So we're going to have a couple of undergrads who are coming in to do some follow-up studies. You can help with, you know, advising them um, and doing a couple of other studies on your own and, you know, helping with the department as well. So, yeah, and no, then that's I'm really here good. today. <laughs> yeah. So did you mention there then that you're eventually going to work towards getting your PhD? And do you think that social media or suppose some of the, the subtopics surrounding that area will be what you end up lecturing or not necessarily? Yeah, that's what I think I'm going to focus on. Like I said, social media is something that kind of covers a lot of different um, 
domains, there's psychology, there's communication, there's information science, there's a lot of topics that are kind of within that bundle. Um, it even crosses into like human computer interaction in a lot of cases. Um, so for me, it's more that I want to kind of study the way that we interact online and the impact of those interactions at a much deeper level, um, which overlaps with a lot of other topics. So broadly, that's what I'm hoping to study as a PhD. And then when I when I graduate, I'd love to lecture on that. So. Yeah, no, it sounds interesting. The intro courses, obviously. So yeah, I, I can imagine it is quite a broad spectrum with so many branches because uh, I was just saying in in the introduction before. I brought you onto the podcast. You have social media, but then from there you have smartphones, laptops, computers, tablets, you know, everything else within those devices as well. It's, uh, it is really in depth, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I'm doing, a, I have like a whole separate study that I'm working on right now, actually, that looks at um, smartphone addiction, which is just a separate phenomenon. You like, it includes the internet and social media, but there's also just having constant access to this technology and these communication capabilities on top of just the broader access of being on the internet constantly. And like, we have these little devices that are constantly available in our pockets and that's definitely having an impact on people. So yeah. that's a whole other area to study. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So Part of the reason why I brought you on was to discuss the causal links between social media and the impact it is having on people mentally with the likes of depression and loneliness sadly becoming more prominent due to the amount of time people are spending on. I suppose the main one is, is social media platforms, so whether that's Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok. Um, so... First of all, could you please elaborate on the study that you were co-author to for Dr. Hunt that was published, was it back in 2018, the no more FOMO, limiting social media, decreases, loneliness in, and depression? Yeah, definitely. So um, I think one point that I, I really want to clarify, and this is something that a lot of people um, um, mistakenly say when they're describing this research, and I think it's important to talk about, is you were mentioning that um, people think that social media is causing this increase in loneliness and depression. And I think mm. a really important distinction to make is that a ton of this research is correlational, not causal. Um, there's more right. causal information coming out. So like ours was actually an experiment, but it was in the reverse direction, seeing what happens when you limit your social media use. Um, but I think the important thing to remember is that we're seeing this uptick in social media use at the same time as we're seeing you know, increases in loneliness and depression. So they're related. Um, we mm. can't necessarily definitively say that like your social media use is causing you to feel more depressed. There's probably a lot of other factors going on or maybe yeah. when you're more depressed, you tend to use social media more. We don't know if it's, you know, a third, a third variable issue, or maybe it's a directionality difference. Um, but that's just something that's really important to keep in mind, especially when you're looking at this literature more broadly. Our yeah. study specifically, what we were trying to do though, is, as I said before, it's mostly correlational. So like talking about phenomena that we see occurring at the same time. Um, and we wanted to add an experiment to the literature. So an experiment means that we can say X definitively causes Y. So yeah. Um, yeah, just given, you know, constraints of having to get a study done within the limits of um, using undergrads and being in the department and such, we decided to do a longitudinal study where we took a bunch of Penn undergrads and we said, okay, um, for half of you, we're going to have you use your social media as usual, and you're going to send us screenshots of how much time you're spending on each application using, this is before the screen time feature on iPhones, yeah. we had them send screenshots of their battery usage, actually, where we could see how much time their battery was being spent on right. um, each application. 
And then for the other half of the students, we said, okay, you have to limit your use to at most 10 minutes per platform across Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat uh, per day across three weeks of the study. And they had to send us those screenshots so that if they were using more than that, like we knew, and we had to tell them to, you know, bring it back down. Um, yeah. And we had a couple people who that happened with. Um, and what we found in the end is that um, people who were told to limit their use um, experienced significant improvements in loneliness and depression. Um, and we argued that that was also a clinically significant difference because for one of the measures, so for depression, we use the Beck depression inventory, which is a standardized scale that we use in clinical psychology to measure depression. And there's a clinical cutoff. Um, if you score 14 on the scale, if you're above 14, that means that it's clinical depression, you can classify it as, and below 14 is non-clinical. Um, and right. we saw people who actually, before they were told to limit their use, who started above that 14 threshold, fell below the 14 threshold after three weeks of using their social media less. So right, okay. what we concluded from that is, you know, becoming more mindful of your social media use and limiting it. So not completely, um, you know, stopping using it, but more just using it in moderation actually mm -hmm. had significant improvements for people. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. And in fairness, I do agree with, with what you're saying uh, right at the start about the fact that because it's not like, completely proven from the study so far, you can't really hold these platforms and, and the creators responsible and using the scapegoats to say that you creating these platforms is therefore causing people to fall into depression or loneliness because it is easy to get hooked on it. Like I've been guilty of it and I'm probably still am guilty of it at times now, but I suppose we have a responsibility as individuals to, like you say, be mindful of how much we're using it and actually take a step back and think, well, I'm making the decision. It's not like the phone's reached out to you and grabbed you and said, you must use me. We have a responsibility to think, okay, I, I don't feel particularly good because I'm spending excessive amounts of time using these platforms. Well, yeah. And I think if I, I think, well, a couple of things you're saying the phone isn't reaching out and telling you to use it. That's kind of the point of these like notifications that we have yeah. pop up. It's yeah, there's like literally behavioral economists who like work on designing these things to sort of grab your attention because your attention is finite. Um, and these smartphones, you know, social media applications, they are strategically designed to grab your attention. That's what they're trying to get. Um, yeah. And they do a great job at it. Um, and I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing. I mean, I think there's definitely, um, you know, there's healthy social media use and there's maladaptive social media use. I think more the point of what I was trying to say is that a lot of times, um, with this area of research, people just kind of tend to confuse like the causal studies and the correlational studies. So that's something that I always like to elaborate on. Maybe it's just me being oversensitive to that because I read this research every single day. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm very sensitive to that. Uh, but it's just an important distinction to keep in mind because I don't, um, I feel like a lot of times I come on these kind of podcasts or like, you know, talking to people about this research and they expect me to be like, oh, social media is really bad. It's making you depressed. And I'm like, well, that's actually not what we're saying. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to make that distinction. No, no, that, that, that's fair enough. And it's, uh, it's only right for you to, uh, to put that forwards as well. Obviously, we'll, we'll discuss it later on in terms of how people can use smartphones and social media productively. But um it was interesting what you were saying there, obviously, you know, the creators of these phones, you know, are there to, to, to grab your attention and make sure that you're acknowledging your notifications. And that was one thing that I did because I'm constantly batting between Facebook to Instagram, to Gmail, to other apps, WhatsApp. If you have your notifications on all of those apps, you would literally probably never get off your phone. 
And that was really one of the main things that, that I did. And I will elaborate on it further later. Turning notifications off the majority of apps that I use definitely helped me because then I don't feel as drawn to wanting to use my phone. Yeah, no, I think it's important. That's, um, we, I mean, we say this to people all the time. Like if you have something that you need to stay up to date on, like if you have text message notifications, you're waiting to hear back from someone, that's, you know, fine if you're, if you actually need to be informed of that in real time. But I mean, having your Instagram notifications of like knowing how many people like your photo and getting real time notifications about that is maybe not necessary. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Well, the main thing that I've had on is uh, is obviously Gmail, just so I can get your emails and make sure that I'm not ignoring <laughs> you before the podcast. But other than that, to be honest, I, I even turn messages off iMessage. I don't even have that on at the moment. So at least if anyone's listening to this, if, if you're ever in an emergency, I'm probably the worst person to contact if you're... Uh, email him because he has his Gmail on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if you have time in an emergency situation to Gmail me, then I'm, I'm your man. Um, so I think you have already touched upon it. Um, but if you wouldn't mind just um, maybe elaborating a little bit further around the results. Because I know you did say that there is a difference between those who were only using, was it 10 minutes per day uh, for each platform? Yeah, so we had, um, like I was saying, we had those two groups. We had people who were using as usual and then people who were limiting to at most 10 minutes per day per platform. So that's 30 minutes overall that they could spend on social media. Um, And we were monitoring them for that. And what we found is that those people who were told to limit their usage, they felt better. Um, and what we also saw, we, so we gave the participants a chance at the end to kind of give us some general feedback about what it was like being in the study, um, just, you know, answering a couple of qualitative questions. And even the people who were in the control group, which is the group who was told to just use their social media as usual, don't change anything. They told us that just being mindful of how much time they were spending on these applications and having to send us those screenshots actually made them more aware of like how much time they were spending. And some of them, we didn't tell them to, but they would unintentionally decrease their use actually, because they noticed that they were spending hours on like Instagram when they could be mm-hmm. out and having fun with their friends and enjoying college life. So it was yeah. really, really interesting. Yeah, definitely. That's one thing I was interested in actually, in terms of how you came to uh, kind of amalgamate those results. Was it a matter of after the study had finished, did you ask them certain questions or do you do anything like neurological and how, and, and how you test people? Is it normally just questions, like a list of questions? So, yeah, so we had um, this, the entire study was over the course of four weeks. Um, so the way it's set up is they sign up and we actually have questionnaires that they complete throughout the study. Um, and for each of the different constructs we were looking at, so for example, depression and loneliness, like I was measuring, I was mentioning before, um, we used clinically validated scales, um, which is very standard practice in psychology. It's basically a series of questions that are meant to measure a certain construct. Um, and we put together this, you know, little fancy survey online for them um, that they did um, once a week week, so five times throughout the study. So when they first signed up at the end of the first week, end of the second week, end of the third week, end of the fourth week. Um, And then we were able to look at their responses to those questions over time. Um, So it was less about having them retroactively say, oh, I felt more depressed um, at the beginning, but they were actually giving us that data as the study was going on. All right. Okay. And it it seems like a good way to do it, to be fair. So you're doing it um, as time goes by. And I suppose you're probably... Were you seeing a significant difference as time went on? So say, if they were using it excessively just before the study started, they might not always feel particularly great um, mentally, but then 
as they start to, to moderate the use and as time goes on, they then gradually started to feel better as the weeks went by. Yeah, so the purpose of that initial first week, so like I was saying, we had them change their use or not, um, having them limit or not um, for the last three weeks. The purpose of the first week of that study was just to establish a baseline. So before we change anything about their use, how much time are they actually spending on these applications? And then from there, we can make the adjustments. Um, so that's where the experimental design kind of comes in that actually lets us make these causal conclusions. Um, but what was really interesting is we found that there actually wasn't a correlation at the beginning between um, social, the amount of time, like objective time spent on social media and well-being, which was really interesting. Um, but what we found is that when you adjust the social media use, that's when there's an impact. Yeah, no, that, that that's really interesting. So in terms of any statistics, I, I mean, I'm guessing that because I have read part of the journal uh, that, that's online, I know that it, it that it's quite in depth. I mean, to be honest, I think it's really beneficial for anyone to read, even if you're not someone who's massively interested in psychology or the, the real in-depth aspects of the study. Um, I mean, some people might find it a little bit heavy, but I, I, I find it really interesting. And like I say, I think it, it's beneficial for, for most of us nowadays who, who are using it a lot but um is there statistics available anywhere online from any of the researches you've done or is it within that journal or yeah i mean you can go online and find statistics about the stuff like we cite for example in the beginning of the study um some information from the pew research institute um about you know how much because they just do these national and global studies all the time. So we can pull that data saying how many yeah. people have smartphones, how many people are using social media, things like that. Um, and then these journals, I mean, like the journal that we published in isn't the only one out there. There's lots of publications and people, especially nowadays, who are studying this technology. But I think the most important thing to keep in mind with these statistics, um, kind of going back to what I was going to before, and not to sound like a broken record, but just when you're reading this information, personally, I like to go back to the original source and I like to read the actual paper um, mm -hmm. instead of reading like, you know, journal art or instead of reading like, um, you know, news articles that are kind of covering what's talked about in those papers, because sometimes they might confuse the correlational and causal conclusions yeah. that those papers are trying to make. So I think that that's the most important part of it, at least for me. And we tried for this paper to make it uh, pretty readable for people who aren't even, you know, within the scientific community mm -hmm. so that they can really yeah. still get something from it, even if it's not the field that they're interested in. Yeah, I, I, I find that definitely because even though I've, I've never even studied psychology at A-level, so A-level is our equivalent of, so when you're 16 to 18, um, that's what you'd study. And I've okay. never even studied it, but it's something that, yeah, I'm st still interested in. And uh, I completely agree with you. I, I didn't find it uh, too heavy either. Just on the point of statistics, which um, one thing I do respect is the fact that even though it's something that you study, you're still not using social media and smartphones as, as, as a scapegoat. Because obviously, like you say, because you study it day in, day out, you're still not trying to say, oh, yes, yeah, social media is really bad you've still got that kind of um element of due diligence about you which is good but um there was a couple of statistics that i came across which were interested in um so there's one which said smartphones were introduced in 2007 and by 2015 fully 92 percent of teens and young adults owned a smartphone um the rise in depressive symptoms correlates with smartphone adoption during that period even where when matched year by year, observes the study's lead author, San Diego State University psychologist, Jean Twenge, um, 
I don't know if you were able to take all of that in or what you kind of think about that. Yeah, I've read a lot of Dr. Twain's work, actually, because she's published a lot on this. Um, I'm like I said, I read these papers like all the time. I think yeah, the yeah. important thing to say, though, is like she was saying that the smartphone um, ownership, I believe was, was what I was talking about, um, and depressive symptoms, it's correlated. So that means that over time, we've seen more people owning smartphones. And at the same time, mm-hmm. there is this rise in depressive symptoms. We can't necessarily say which one causes which. Like if you're using mm-hmm. social media more, are you more depressed? Or when you're more depressed, are you more likely to seek out social media? we can't necessarily say which direction that goes in, but it's really interesting to note that they're happening at the same time, because that means that there most likely is some kind of a relationship happening there, but that's where we need more research to actually establish what's going on at a deeper level. Yeah. What, what, what kind of research are you conducting either at the moment or what do you have in the pipeline, which will hopefully definitively state that, or do you think it will still be quite difficult for another couple of years? I think we need a couple of years because there's going to be so many differences based on like, um, you know, what demographic are you in? Do you have pre-existing conditions? Um, what other things are going on in your life? I think there's a lot of nuances that we need to kind of flush out. Um, mm-hmm. We have a couple more experimental studies that are in the pipeline. Like I said, I did one with dating applications. So we're kind of trying to expand across other platforms because maybe there's a difference, for example, if you're using one that's geared towards romantic relationships versus one that's geared towards more platonic relationships, um, things like that. So I think as many experimental studies as we can get um, to kind of elaborate on this correlational data that we're seeing um, Mm -hmm. would be really beneficial. And then there's also a lot of kind of subtopics within that. So there's social media specifically, but then, um, like I was saying, I'm actually currently working on a study that's looking at smartphone addiction, which is yeah. kind of, it includes social media use, but just on the broader, uh, the broader idea of it is more that like, we just have constant access to all of these different applications and platforms um, and communication capabilities right in our pockets constantly, like 24 seven. So what's the impact of that, um, which reaches yeah. beyond just social media? So. No, that, that, that's really good. I like what you said there as well about the fact that, um, I suppose taking into consideration if someone has already maybe underlying um, mental health issues, maybe that that have stemmed from childhood, or I think some people are even born, unfortunately, with with certain mental health conditions, and I suppose your personal circumstances. So, without meaning to play the world's smallest violin, for instance, with with my circumstances, I've been single for God knows how many years. And that's just out of personal choice. I maybe haven't always had the closest relationship with family members such as my mum and dad. So if I spend an excessive amount of time on a smartphone, maybe during a Christmas period where if you're single, you have no kids and you don't really have a particularly close relationship with your parents. Naturally, if you see people around I don't know, a Christmas dinner table or Christmas tree or couples together, it's not actually necessarily the the social media platforms that are causing that it's maybe you thinking about your own personal circumstances and and that's what's triggering it instead yeah and i think well i mean so th- the thing to remember is that these social media platforms are perf- it's a tool it's an opportunity for you to be able to like connect with people um and there are great things that have come out of social media platforms so you were mentioning the holidays for example like especially during COVID, I'm sure a lot of people have probably used those like Facebook rooms that they just put out to like have holiday parties with their families if they're able to, um, but, and you know, in separate households. So they're able to prevent the spread of COVID-19, things like that. Yeah. So there's definitely positive aspects of it, but I think, um, you know, depending on someone's circumstance, like you were saying, if someone maybe doesn't have those social connections and, and wants them, 
Um, and they go on Instagram. Another thing is that, like I said, Instagram is a tool for you to be able to connect with other people. But um, a lot of times, an important thing to remember that a lot of people forget is people put a very perfected version of themselves on social media. Like what you see on there isn't a reality. Um, so mm -hmm. there ends up being a lot of upward social comparison, meaning that you're seeing these photos of these people who have, they've edited themselves. They've, you know, probably spent a bunch of time picking out the best caption to make them look yeah, the yeah. happiest and the wittiest things like that. Um, but that's yeah. probably not what their real life is like. Not saying it's horrible. It's just that like, that's not what real life is. It's a very yeah, yeah. edited and curated version of it. Um, so I think that that's the aspect of going on these applications sometimes that, kind of impacts people where there's a lot of, you know, editing and perfecting that goes on and things like that. And that's what sort of leads people to kind of compare themselves to it and then feel bad. No, absolutely. It's something that I read about probably about a year and a half ago. I don't know if you've ever came across him. Um, he's uh, an Asian uh, GP who's based in Manchester. I think he had his own uh, practice called Rongan Chatterjee. Um, he did a book called The Four Pillar Plan. So it's based on four pillars of physical and mental well-being. And, and part of it was on mindfulness, but uh, especially around smartphone and social media use. Um, he's kind of reiterating the point that you made there. Um, he was touching on the whole perfectionist presentation where naturally people will only upload the best parts of their day, the highlight reel. So for instance, if, if I failed an exam, I'm not going to post on my Instagram, look at me, I, I failed an exam. I'm most yeah. likely going to reset, reset, reset that exam, sorry. And then if I pass it, I'll, I'll then post. But what, what I've been trying to do personally, and it's not that anyone should feel like they have to do it, it's because the, the past couple of years, I've kind of, and I've still got a very long way to go. I've worked my way from the very bottom in music industry and, and finance as well. And whenever I post something, I actually prefer personally to, detail the journey that I've been on so far and maybe some of the struggles that I've been through on the way to um, achieving what, what I've done. Um, so it leaves then, I'm probably being a bit more mindful of the fact that I don't want to look like I'm being big headed or braggish all of the time, but I do think it's important to put it out there and show people that, okay, I may have achieved this, but this is what I had to go through in order to get to this position and as I say it's not something you know no one should feel obliged to have to do that that's just something I do out of personal choice I think it's quite a nice touch to be honest yeah I think I mean I think it's important to try to be authentic you know both online and offline I think mm -hmm. um as much as we can kind of like ideally our online lives would you know it would kind of be a reflection of our offline lives and it would kind of I guess it would be more realistic I think that the place where people start to kind of get into trouble is like we have all these Instagram influencers, for example, or like TikTok influencers who only post these very curated versions of their lives. And it's always just them like being happy, holding a product, you know, something like that. And that's not realistic, especially for people who are developing and kind of trying to figure out like what they want themselves, what they want to look like, what they want to do, what all of these things are just trying to figure out about themselves. It kind of gives them an unrealistic expectation because that's not really what reality is. So. Yeah, it, it's very true. I mean, it's only a very select minority that, you know, are successful going down that path. And it's something whenever I've released any videos previously, it, it's the same with, with social media platforms. And I'm sure you'd agree is with influencers, for et cetera, um, for example, sorry, with that whole kind of culture that's emerged, some aspects of it are positive, but some aspects of it are also quite toxic 
whether it's you know trying to push this agenda that you you have to dress a certain way with really high fashion brands that cost hundreds and hundreds of pounds or dollars you have to look a certain way and and that applies to both males and females to be honest and you know we can't use them as a scapegoat which are, which i'm sure you would completely agree with but there there has been that culture that's emerged where people think that's the path i need to go down but they you know there's people who are 17 18 19 that haven't even really started out in life that are now putting so much pressure on themselves to look a certain way act a certain way dress a certain way and that's not being patronizing because i'm sure you would say with someone who does psychology you know your, your brain hasn't even properly developed until you're 23 24 um so you know you, you haven't even started to work out what you really want to do in your own life and you're feeling like you have to go down a certain path yeah and i mean i think even not just career wise like I, there's there's a lot of research out there about the impact of um you know social media and um kind of curated images and things like that on body image um for both boys and girls and especially when you're developing and when you're kind of in that you know like awkward middle school state like middle school is hard enough i went through middle school without social media and i'm so happy about it like i have cousins so going through middle school with instagram at the same time and i'm like that's just really hard because you yeah. you see these pictures of people who are you know kind of around your age but they they've edited themselves or they have access to kind of make these alterations to their body or things like that, or follow these really um, honestly disordered, like eating patterns, things like that, just to look mm. a certain way. And then they kind of are idealized for looking that way. Um, and then you're constantly exposed to it on these applications, especially if those are the types of accounts that you look, try to follow, um, which actually brings me to another point. Like I was saying before though, it's, uh, I'm not trying to sound like social media is all doom and gloom. Like I feel like there's uh, and this is another thing that we're trying to study is like, you know, if you're, this is actually another study that we have going on, different kind of accounts that you're interacting with. So if you're just interacting, for example, with these celebrity accounts, like, um, like the Kardashians, I don't know, who have access to like alter how they look. And they, no, but seriously, they have, they yeah, have the true, to true. alter how they look and they've mm. achieved the sort of idealized body image um, versus if you're following just your friends and people, you know, in real life who actually look like normal humans do and you really know who they are. Um, or even yeah. if you're engaging with content that's like, I don't know if your whole feed is like cute animal videos, like that's probably not going to be very maladaptive or if it's like cooking tutorials, things like that. Yeah. So social media is meant for a lot more than just those potentially negative experiences. No, I, absolutely. And it, it's one thing that I've been more mindful of, both in terms of making sure I don't get distracted and so that I'm consuming content, especially on Instagram, when you can sometimes end up mindlessly scrolling um, so that anything I'm consuming is positive and, and beneficial and maybe even educational. And sometimes I have to go and mute stories and posts because otherwise when I'm trying to do something, I fall into the trap or rabbit hole of, you know, constantly looking at what someone's doing throughout their day. And you have to think, um, it's not that you don't want to see people do well, you know, it's, it's nice to um, uplift people and, and comment and be supportive, but if you're just watching someone's Instagram story and watching how their day's unfolding and developing, then you've got to think, well, that doesn't really bring too much value to your own day. And what could you be doing with your own day instead of wasting time doing that instead? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think like you were saying, like, I mean, it's obviously it's like, I at least speak personally, like, I think it's important to, you know, support your friends. And if, of you course. know, if someone achieves something like be happy for them, that's a great thing. And they're sharing it 
um, if they share it on social media, it's because they, they're proud of it and they want people to know that that's what they did. But I think um, a difference also in following people's lives kind of comes in um, when you think about the kinds of social connections you have with the people who you're interacting with on these platforms. So if you're seeing these success stories from, you know, people who you've never met and they're just these idealized celebrities on social media and like you don't actually have a social connection to them versus like a family friend, someone you went to school with, like, you know, things like that, where they're actually interactions you could have like in the real world and their social connections that are impacting your life in other ways, other than just scrolling through their feed and looking at their story. Yeah, definitely. I think that's been one of the most difficult parts. So has in it since COVID hit, um, it's probably similar in the United States as it has been here. Was it around the end of February last year, beginning of March when it started to unfortunately sweep through uh, both our respective countries, but because of not being able to see people in normal circumstances, whereas you might think I'm going to put my phone down and go to my friend's house or go to a restaurant or cinema, though, because those things have been largely taken away, naturally now people, because they're in their houses, will think, oh, rather than maybe reading a book or, or doing something else, I'm going to spend more time on, the, on social media. But um, what, one thing I wanted to ask, I suppose it's more of uh, your opinion, and um, obviously you don't have a crystal ball to, to see what the future holds. But do you think with the way that it's going and, and the route it's going down, that it will get to the stage where platforms like Instagram and Facebook will recognize that it's morally right to allow the user more control on how they use the platform. So just purely as an example, if I felt that it was impacting me by constantly watching people's stories and I didn't want to have to manually go in and mute, each individual story and post and just so I don't get distracted do you think that it will get to the stage where they might say if you want to disable that feature you can do it or is it I suppose it's just a bit of guesswork isn't it what what do you think might happen yeah I mean I think um in terms of like what's possible on like the technical end of like you know developing all of that I don't know where they are on that I don't have like you know insider information or anything um, no, but course. I think that there's yeah, I think there's already actually a pretty good amount of customizability, though, on these applications for what kind of experiences you want to have. So I think and I think some of these companies are starting to recognize this already, actually, which is really promising to see, um, because I don't think that this is the intended path that like when these social media, like, for example, the people who invented um, the like button on Facebook, like they didn't intend it to be a source of stress for people who are like comparing how many likes they get. They thought it was just going to be a way to like share, you know, support and positivity and things like that. Yeah, like, yeah. Now, um, these capabilities, like being able to mute stories from certain people or being able to shut off notifications from an application on your phone um, or, you know, the screen time feature even on, um, I'm sure there's a similar one on Android, so like on the iPhone, um, you can see how much time you spend on these platforms and that kind of, and it gives you a review at the end of the week. So you can kind of take into account like, okay, I didn't feel great. And I didn't spend it. I did spend a time to time on these applications. Maybe I should kind of limit myself next week. Um, and there's a bunch of applications that can kind of do that for you. Or there's even applications meant for parents to kind of help them limit their children's um, screen time use, or so they can monitor their children's screen time use, things like that. I think we are just, all of those are kind of meant to be examples of how we're kind of already in that stage where it's very customizable what kind of experience you want to have, which I think yeah. is really great. Um, I think now we just need to understand better, like at what point does 
using social media become maladaptive and how can we use it in the best possible way? Because, and mm-hmm. I don't think that that's necessarily something that like the government or these companies are going to come in and just like mandate for you. Yeah. I don't think, I think it's more, and also because we don't understand enough about it yet for them to mm-hmm. try to do that. I think it's more that um, people need to understand, like I said, these are tools um, for you to have social interactions and with COVID, like you were saying, a lot of our interactions have become increasingly virtual. So they're really helpful tools. Um, But we need to understand at what point, like we're using them in the way that they're meant to be used and they're helping us versus when are they actually starting to kind of impair our mental health or maybe have us, give us a warped perception of what reality really is. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I maybe didn't word it the best way because I think I was trying to ask in terms of your opinion, if you're friends with Mark Zuckerberg, do you think he'll be... uh, (laughs) making any amendments but uh no it, it, it is right and i'm sure we'll, we'll come on to it um in more detail later on in terms of how people can use the platforms in in a productive and positive way even now rather than it having to get to the stage where i mean you'd like to think that you know governments or whoever else wouldn't have to step in and say you know mental health services are at breaking point with the younger generation because we have you know, without being pessimistic, a generation of kids that have just spent so much time on smartphones and Instagram and Facebook that they're all, you know, not in in a, in a good way mentally. But that, I feel that's where education is is, is really important. And hence why we're doing the podcast now is to, to get it around to as many people as possible that you, you know, that you can use these platforms in, in a productive and positive way. And also a lot of what you're seeing definitely isn't reality um yeah yeah so I think that that was really the the main point then uh what are the best tips you can give off kind of the top of your head to both I suppose not even just the younger generation but even anyone um our age or older uh, that feels like maybe they're not always feeling the best when they're using either like their smartphone or or social media platforms as well um, and, you know, we can therefore hopefully see a decent reduction in, in detrimental impacts to mental health. Um, yeah. So, I mean, um, like I was saying before, being mindful of how much time you're spending on these applications is, are, is tremendously helpful. Um, we saw that with our own participants, even without telling them to change anything, just them being aware of the fact that maybe they spent two hours on Instagram yesterday and they're thinking of all the other things they could have done with that time um, mm-hmm. is really, really helpful. Another thing, I know this isn't maybe possible because of COVID, but if you're able, if you're sitting down for like a family dinner or if you're out with friends, not, you know, COVID permitting and like not putting yourself at any kind of risk or anything like that. Yeah. Um, or even if you're on like a Zoom call, if you're doing like a Zoom happy hour, if you're over 21. Um, and I, because I know that those are 18 becoming, in the UK, 21 in America. Okay, if you're in the US <laughs> over 21 um, and you're on like a Zoom happy hour, don't have your phone up and like, you know, be responding to text messages on the side while you have like really try to engage in those social interactions and kind of put your phone to the side. Um, I know like with my own family, for example, we have a like no phones at the dinner table rule. Um, so we're all actually having those in-person interactions and we're not just constantly checking our phone. So it's kind of a, a chance for us to sort of have a break from that. Um, and I know, I mean, with like, a lot of people having virtual work, they're probably spending a lot of time on Zoom. So if you can kind of give your eyes a break from looking at the screen, maybe like if you have a pet, go play with your pet um, or go for a walk outside, staying six feet away from people, um, you know, stuff like that kind of. And yeah. then also um, for, uh, I'm obviously not a parent myself, but I mean, for 
for parents, we've kind of told them this a little bit too. If you can kind of model these behaviors for your kids, so not constantly being on your phones, especially, you know, meal times or times when you're um, just hanging out with your family or your friends and your kids might see what you're doing, have your mm-hmm. phone to the side. Don't constantly be checking for notifications. Um, yeah. And a good way to do that also is to turn off notifications that you don't necessarily need to see all day because that'll just decrease the number of times that you're like looking over and, you know, checking your smartphone to see what's going on. Like I, even like during this interview, I have my phone on do not disturb right now. So I'm not like constantly looking over and like trying to see who's trying to reach me um, because then you're able to actually engage in what the, who you're currently talking to. Yeah. Those are just a couple of tips. I appreciate that. I thanks for uh, (laughs) paying attention to the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, no Uh, problem. (laughs) Yeah, it, it, there's just a couple of points I wanted to add as well for, from my own personal experience, which I hope will will benefit anyone. Uh, I already mentioned earlier on that I've, I've turned off notifications for pretty much all of them. I think the only ones I keep on are LinkedIn because uh, of like networking with people on like a business level or Gmail because I use that for, for business as well. But like you say, a, a lot of the time, apps like Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, is it really a necessity to have notifications on i'm not not sure if it is but some people would argue that if their business is primarily on those social media apps but i sure that's down to the individual to decide but with with instagram because i find that is the app that i use more than any because facebook without getting too political with covid and the spread of misinformation i'm trying to keep off facebook because of the amount of nonsense i'm seeing on there with people that are you know, saying COVID doesn't exist or the, the vaccine's got a microchip where Bill Gates is going to control you. I just think, nah, I'm, uh, I'm trying to keep away <laughs> from, from Facebook, to be honest. But with Instagram, I noticed that, I think, I feel like it applies to both boys and girls, but I've had some girls approach me and say that if you're naturally, you know, very much into makeup and fashion, whereas when you're younger, you might see, magazines which have you know models in there that look a certain way the problem is now you're exposed to it with magazines but also on social media as well and I suppose it's about trying to do a little bit of deep work and work out which pages you can follow and interact with which you can still enjoy the content that you're genuinely interested in but so that you're consuming it in in the right way so a lot of the pages I, I follow now personally will be I've had to think about, well, what films do I really like? What series do I really like? Um, maybe if it's business, entrepreneur, philosophy, anything, quotes, anything really I find that's, that's positive and, and brings me, um, brings value to, to my day. You know, it might be a motivational quote or anything like that. Obviously, it's, it's something that not everybody's interested in, but sometimes I feel like you have to do that deep work if you're going to be spending more than, you know, like, like you were doing with the study, most people will be spending far more than 10 minutes a day on, on each platform. If you are going to be spending more than that, then you're using it in the right way. Um, and just before we move on, another one that I noticed on the explore part of Instagram, I've noticed a lot of people said that they felt like they couldn't even avoid that when they were going on explore. I think it probably is something to do with the algorithms on Instagram even when they were going to search something, you have all the the popular parts underneath. And a lot of that was people on holiday, um, influencers, celebrities, et cetera. 
I think there's, um, if you go onto the post, there's three dots. And if you click not interested, I think you have to do it with a fair few posts. But in the end, the algorithms will refresh and then you will start to see content that's um, much more beneficial and makes you feel a lot better as well. You feel like you can actually escape from seeing something that you don't necessarily want to see. But I just thought I'd add that because those were points that I kind of picked up on that I think will help people as well. Yeah, definitely. No, those are good points too. Yeah. So the next point was, um, I think you already mentioned it because we're, we're a similar age. I think we were quite fortunate in some ways that we missed um, that, that generation where when we were at school and college, social media was only just coming through and, and the same as smartphones. Um, but one, what, this is just my opinion, but the biggest concern surely is that the, the millennial generation um, are probably allowing themselves to be consumed by like, these platforms and smartphones. And that's where probably you're a bit more vulnerable when your brain's developing to, you know, potentially things like depression when your brain's still developing. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Would you say that's a fair assessment when you're still quite young and adolescent? No, yeah. I mean, there's definitely, there's like environmental and then there's also, um, you know, genetic factors that have to do with a lot of these different phenomena. But I think um, some of the social media exposures are especially potentially dangerous for younger people. So like uh, people who are going through adolescence, for example, and there's just a lot changing in their lives and their brains are developing so rapidly. And they're going through a lot of, you know, physical and emotional changes. I think that they're definitely going to be more susceptible to some of the things we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. There was, there was another study that I looked at as well on uh, particularly millennials who because of maybe using social media too much and feeling like you know they may be suffering from like fear of missing out and you know people especially like dressing a certain way um I used to fall victim to it because I'm, I'm more than open and honest I'm I'm not so bad anymore I actually prefer trying to find the best bargain out there for as cheap as possible but I used to spend ridiculous amounts on designer clothes, trainers. And a lot of that was because I, I, I would actually almost be in the mindset where I think, oh, I've had a photo in that. So I, I feel like I can't either wear it again or wear it for some time. So I feel like I have to buy something else, but I'm kind of grateful and fortunate that I've, I've snapped out of that mindset and I feel like I, I don't want to do it anymore. But there was a study by Allianz Life, which showed that 61% of millennials said they've had feelings of inadequacy about their lives because of what they saw on social media. And 57% said that social media caused them to spend money due to a fear of missing out. Um, and there was just another brief one. Credit Karma found that 39% of millennials had even gone into debt just to keep up with their friends. Um, although millennials were the most likely to be affected by social media, they weren't alone. One third of baby boomers reported a fear of missing out when they browsed their social media. So I suppose it comes back to what you were saying before, that there is no proof that, that social media is the cause because it's still in its early stages. But some of these studies are quite interesting with, with what they're, they're finding out. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's definitely important to keep in mind, though, I mean, like a, a huge portion of at least from how I understand it, um, from Facebook's revenue, it comes from ads. So like, you know, companies where their users would theoretically spend money, they, they pay to advertise. 
um, on these platforms and you're constantly exposed to it. And like, even there's a new whole tab on Instagram now where you can shop some of the looks that you've seen. So I think it's also uh, part of it might have to do with the fact that like the ability to shop and like, on like online shopping is still relatively new. Like now we have Amazon and we have all these capabilities where we can get whatever we want, like with the snap of our fingers. Um, mm -hmm. And I think having that constant access and capability to buy things and this illusion that like, oh, um, you know, I can pay an installment. So it's not really that much money or um, mm. being able to say, oh, I can like use a credit card. So it's not really coming out of my account right now when you do owe that money eventually, things like that. Um, I think it just makes it so much easier to spend money and not feel bad about it, which is probably the trap that people are falling into, especially, you know, on social media, if they see one of their favorite influencers who they maybe don't realize is in like the top 0.0001% and like being paid to market whatever they're wearing. Mm -hmm. And like, that's not, that, that, that's not the reality for most people, but that's not what it seems like when you're on these applications, um, which kind of makes you feel pressure to want to, you know, buy and wear whatever it is that they have up there. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's, and I think um, the point about it being like mostly millennials, I think like technically like based on like, I'm technically a millennial. I think that like the cutoff is like 85 or something um, for the beginning of the millennial generation. So it's really interesting like how wide that goes. But I think it's because like we're the generation that's either like grown up, like Gen Z has really grown up with these technologies, but we've sort of, as we got older, we've had these technologies available to us. And then also our daily lives now, even like we, we have these jobs that have become increasingly high tech. And you know, when you go, when you graduate and you go into the job force, like a lot of people are probably on a lot of Zoom calls now and using the internet more often. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's just constantly having these ads and this access to being able to buy whatever we want, in theory, mm -hmm. um, that's probably leading to a lot of those numbers that you were talking about, but it's really interesting. Yeah, uh, I'm sure you probably watched it, uh, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. You know, it, it, it doesn't go, I suppose, too much into social media. Part of it is around how the likes of Google and Facebook use the data and, you know, want to keep you captivated and, and on their platforms. But um, do you think that there will come a stage where not necessarily the, the companies themselves, but say, uh, high schools uh, or colleges will kind of have a bit of a moral responsibility to maybe even show some of these um, like docudramas to show people the, the reality around what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, I think so. I think that that documentary was really the one you mentioned, Social Dilemma, was really good for raising awareness. I think it's um, it, and not necessarily specifically showing like, like you called it a docudrama. Um, I like that term. I hadn't heard that before. Um, I think it's important though for people to realize that like I was I was always raised just like I, I happen to have somebody in my family who like is in IT. So they understand the back end of this stuff. And they're like, listen, the way that these technologies, <clears throat> excuse me, are designed, like anything you put online is there forever. Even if it's just like a one-on-one -on -one text message or something like that, that is stored somewhere in this giant cloud of zeros and ones. That's like, it is, it's not going away. It's not like a piece of paper that you hand to somebody. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize because these technologies have given us like such incredible communication and um, access to information and, you know, all these different capabilities that we didn't have before. But at the same time, you do open yourself up to kind of more cybersecurity risks that we maybe didn't have before. And I think people just don't necessarily understand that those yeah. exist yet, because like I said, they're so new and it's just not something that's necessarily talked about to a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's something that's really important for people to be educated about, especially like younger people, for example, who don't necessarily understand that like if they 
post something online, like even if you take it down, it's still out there. Like it's out there forever. So yeah, definitely. It's it's something like that I wish I was more mindful of over the past couple of years, but I think I've definitely uh, grown up a bit more now. Um, the other point was uh, just around general smartphone use. I feel particularly during COVID nineteen and. The way that I've tried to preach it is that everyone is entitled to their own opinion um, around issues such as COVID. But um, with smartphone use, you don't even have to necessarily be on the likes of Facebook. It's, you know, you can come across blogs where people have to be mindful of the fact that some of the information that you're coming across, because there's so many people that have access to a smartphone, not all of the information is correct and it doesn't have scientific evidence. It's not being backed up properly and I did a podcast um, about a week or so ago with a senior bioinformatics scientist who works for AstraZeneca so they're responsible for developing the vaccine and he said that's been one of the main issues particularly with smartphones and it causing a lot of um, distress with people, anxiety around what, what to believe because if you're constantly coming across blogs, for instance, even off social media, which will discredit science and, you know, stuff that's fact, people have studied this for years and years, you then start to question what's genuine and what's real. And, you know, it can, it can be a real danger. And, and one thing that I wanted to just get across before I ask kind of your opinion without going too political, of course, is that, you know, just make sure that when you're, on your smartphone or social media, you're actually fact checking what you're reading. You know, are you know, are you listening to the to the right people? Is it just someone who's not studied this field whatsoever, particularly science, but you know, which is such a complex subject. And one of the um, especially with the media, he said probably to go to the likes of the Atlantic and the Financial Times because they're more reliable news sources that are actually doing the groundwork with the scientists. Whereas um, I'm not sure what your um, version is of of tabloids over in America, where you have some newspapers, which will just sensationalize anything. They'll just run with any headline and make you completely anxious. But I didn't know what, what your kind of opinions were around smartphones and especially with everything that's gone on with, with COVID and how that might be impacting people as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I think a misinformation is so like, you know, putting out information that's not actually true, not necessarily, um, not for a bad purpose, it's more just people are believing something that's actually incorrect, um, mm-hmm. is a huge issue on social media. That's like a whole topic that people are studying, like in and of itself. And it's another thing that I'm really interested in, actually, too. Um, and especially like with COVID, there's a lot of medical misinformation, things like that. So I think um, the gentleman that you were mentioning, who you spoke to um, last week is like, totally correct. I personally, like, i don't use social media to do to get like medical or like you know that kind of information I would rather go to a more trusted source so make sure that like the source that you're getting the information from is actually reliable and trustworthy um Mm -hmm. if you're getting it from like you know um the company that's making the vaccine like I'm sure they have information pages on their websites that are you know very carefully put together and curated to make sure that the information is very easily accessible or going to like the CDC or WHO things like that I'm not going necessarily to like Joe Schmo's blog of like you know his opinions on these things uh-huh. or like someone's some one of your or like some random celebrities twitter feed you know that yeah. is, who's maybe putting out just their opinions on this stuff it's not actually research like make sure if you're 
trying to get information about like, you know, scientific information in relation to COVID or like, you know, political information, stuff like that, that you're actually going to trusted sources and realizing that social media is basically, it's like all of these conversations that you might be hearing of, like if you're walking down the street and like you hear some random person talking about, I don't know, like like some information about the vaccine that's probably incorrect. Like those mm-hmm. same things are happening online. All of, those in, all of those incorrect conversations are just being moved to a virtual platform. And that's especially a problem um, in a lot of places like Twitter or um, Reddit. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I don't use Twitter. I I used it very briefly, but that struck me as probably the most toxic platform. And and so I just decided not to venture on there at all. It's so, well, so it's so interesting. There's, it's really potentially toxic, but a lot of academics actually will use Twitter as a way to kind of get their research out to the masses. So Mm -hmm. if you can find like a vetted, like, you know, source of like, this is coming from like the scientist who developed the vaccine or something and they'll put out the original papers, like they'll literally post PDFs of their research. And like, that's a great way to get information because it's coming directly from the source. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I did notice that certain high profile scientists were having to go onto social media platforms and I think some of like the the really respected doctors and nurses in in those fields and 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 scientists and researchers were even going on TikTok to educate people because they realized that that was the best way to get the factual information across because Otherwise, if you're someone who has no idea who the scientists are or the, the researchers or the top doctors, then yeah, you, you might end up being consumed by potentially dangerous um, misinformation, which like you say, might not necessarily be put out to uh, be malicious or cause anyone harm. But if you take the wrong advice from someone who's not an expert in that field, then that could potentially endanger your life or someone you know, within your family or a friend as well. Yeah, no, and I mean, I'm sure that there's people who are putting who are putting this information out, and they think they're helping people, but like the information's actually mm-hmm. incorrect, which is why I was saying to go directly to a source. I actually, this just reminded me. I remember I was sitting um, with Dr. Hunt once, and we were using Reddit as like a recruitment tool to try to you know get people to join our study. Um, and mm-hmm. we were looking at a subpopulation of Reddit that had like a certain clinical issue, um, and we, Dr. Hunt happens to know a lot about like the medical side of this clinical issue because that's what she treats mostly. And there were people on there who were asking questions about like their course of treatment and whether or not they should believe their doctors and stuff. And people were just posting such incorrect information, but it's just because they're not, they're not, it's not what they've studied. They're just not educated about it, but they're trying to help. So we literally sat there for like a couple of hours, like correcting individual posts being like, well, actually the research says X, Y, Z instead of what you're saying. Um, but I think that companies are like, there's a tremendous amount of research out there now trying to kind of adjust algorithms and things like that on the back end to make it more efficient. Um, but to kind of address this issue of misinformation so that it doesn't end up hurting anybody. Because like I said, yeah, like, people absolutely. aren't necessarily, people, hopefully, hopefully people aren't necessarily putting it out there for, you know, any bad intentions or anything like that. It's just that the information that they have, because they don't necessarily actually understand it is not correct. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the thing as well is what works for one person might not work for another because, you know, we're all different as, as human beings. Our, our genetic buildup is, is different. You know, one person using natural remedies and ignoring their doctor's advice may work for them. But there was a really sad case. There was um, a young gentleman from Liverpool over here in England who was diagnosed with cancer. And I think he was in his early 20s came across a blog where he was advised refuse chemotherapy 
go down a hardcore vegan route, fasting, meditation, all of the natural remedies. And he thought he was getting better, but actually when he went back to the doctor, uh, the size of the tumours increased and they um, metastasized and um, he was terminally ill and then he died. So it goes to show that, you know, what might have worked for one individual, you know, you, you have to be really careful about what you get especially like scientific advice or especially health for your own body. Um, yeah, it is important that you maybe go to more than just a doctor, but a doctor is a doctor for a reason because they've normally studied something that, you know, they haven't just done three years at a university. They've probably done eight or nine years and they've been through so many stringent processes and exams and due diligence to make sure that they're actually most of the time good at what they do and they they're qualified to give that medical advice yeah I think yes yeah, just overall like be be like kind of skeptical I guess of like information that you're getting on social media platforms like just make sure you take it with a grain of salt and like you know fact check it a bit don't just take yeah. something at face value that you like read on a random blog or on Facebook <laughs> yeah definitely one thing I will do I will add to the Instagram post and also the, the Spotify description notes is the, the journal that you did with Dr. Hunt. Uh, what other either journals or helpful maybe studies or um, I know even any pieces of film, what, what would you advise people to maybe watch or read that could be beneficial for them educating themselves around social media I, and smartphones? Oh, you know, I think that there's so much information out there. I mean, you can literally, like you can go onto even like Google Scholar, which is where you'll find like, you know, the academic journals and you can just search like social media and well-being and things like that. But I think um, the more important point of it is, I mean, basically the point of everything that we're saying and like all of this research, like for the average person who like just wants to understand like how to make their life healthier, like I think that a better approach for them would just be kind of becoming more mindful of how much time they personally are spending on these applications and trying to incorporate some of those um, like modifications that we were talking about before with like the notifications and having more in-person interactions and things like that. Cause I mean, mm -hmm. there's just, there's tons of literature out there about like, you know, social media, smartphone addiction, internet addiction, things like that. And you can just do a quick Google search probably and find a lot of things. And there's tons of books and I know that there's like scholars like Jean Twain for example the person you were mentioning before she's published extensively on this topic um, and mm -hmm. I have a couple more papers that are going to be coming out um, as well on this and I think it's important to but I think I think for the average person like I was saying it's important more for them to just kind of start to see where what we're talking about is fitting into their daily lives instead of getting too bogged down in the details of the studies. Yeah so. definitely um, but nevertheless as I say because it wasn't too heavy I'll make sure to to post the journal and just before we go um, I, I was interested to read that you also did a separate study was it on dating applications and the impact that can have so I'm, I, I am interested yeah. I'm sure everyone else is as well because I'm definitely guilty I've used Tinder, <laughs> Bumble, Hinge I think there's not many dating apps that I haven't used by now so I'm interested to yeah. know what kind of st studies, you, studies you were conducting there and, and what the results were. 
Yeah, so that one's going to be coming out. I'm actually working on that publication now. Um, so that'll be coming out soon, probably. But um, basically, what we did is we did a similar design to the social media study where we had people actually instead of limiting their use, we had them completely stop using applications. So it was another experimental design, they either stopped using them, or they kept using them as usual. And they did um, more of these psychometric scales, like I was saying before. Um, and we tried to do is expand upon a lot of the research that had been done before was either focusing on Tinder usage, because that's just like, you know, such a popular platform for people, or yeah. um, they had mostly correlational results. So they were looking at things like, you know, different things that were co-occurring, but not necessarily being able to draw a causal conclusion. Um, so we decided to expand on that by doing an experimental design instead of doing something that was just um, observational. And then also, instead of just recruiting on Tinder, uh, we actually also incorporated Hinge or Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, um, Coffee Meets Bagel, League and Grinder. Um, so those were six applications that we used. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was really interesting because I, so I think we, we were limited and we were using like the psychology undergrad pool. So I would love to actually redo this study with like a much larger sample of people, because I'm really interested to see if there's differences across platforms or even like in, if there's a difference in the purpose of the platform and then like what people are getting out of it and how it makes them feel about it. Um, we just didn't have enough people in this initial study. It was just like more of a proof of concept study um, to actually be able to ask those questions. But really interestingly, what we found is that being able to, so stopping using dating applications, like just completely not using them anymore, didn't have an impact. But what we found is that for men who were allowed to stay on these applications, they saw significant improvements in their self-perceived interpersonal attractiveness, whereas women didn't have that improvement. Right, so okay. I think it's really interesting to see some of the gender differences that are kind of starting to emerge in these applications. But again, yeah. something really important to keep in mind about those results that I just said is like we were working with a small sample. It was just, you know, Penn undergraduates. Um, so it is a select kind of group of people. So maybe that just happened to be the tendency for those participants, whereas I'd love to do this with like a much larger sample of people from just more diverse backgrounds and see if that actually holds up. Yeah. Um, but it, that was just like an be... initial study. It, it would be interesting to see what the outcomes are with with a larger sample. I mean, um, I don't really use them as much anymore, but uh, please don't check my history. Otherwise, you, you might question <laughs> it. But I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little bit old school in the sense that I, I think it is nicer to, to meet someone kind of like naturally um, and a little bit spontaneously. In, in person whereas it, it's not a bad thing you know times have changed times have moved on and adapted and evolved and I've got a lot of friends that are in you know really secure happy long-term relationships from people they've met off Bumble or Hinge not always Tinder sometimes Tinder but Tinder's normally a bit more yeah. casual than, uh, than, than I mean the I actually others, know people but... I know a couple of people who just got married and they met on Tinder like it's totally yeah. possible I think yeah um, definitely but I think it's interesting because there's actually, there's actually um, a couple of researchers who are doing studies about like, you know, love during COVID. And I think it's really interesting um, to look at because like our relationships have kind of been forced to go virtual. So I think especially during a time like COVID, people like feel like they don't really have any other option to meet people. Mm -hmm. And also it's kind of just the nature of being in the 21st century. Like we have these technologies available. Of course, people are going to try to use them. And I think um, this is another one of those like questions that I want to ask is like, there's different objectives for going on different platforms and are people, 
aware of that necessarily, or do like do different platforms draw different types of people maybe. Um, but it's also really interesting. I was looking at some information from um, Hinge specifically, they just launched something called Hinge Labs. Um, and they kind of, they have like a research scientist who's I've actually met her, she's lovely, super, super nice. Um, and she's releasing like scientific research about how people are using the application. And it's really interesting because during COVID specifically, um, people have been like, you know, there's been an uptick in users, but people have also been doing like virtual dates through the platform. So it's another way mm -hmm. to just allow people to kind of connect, but like for a more specified purpose, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. From, from my personal experience and just from anyone that I've spoken to who's honest, I can only probably say for England, but obviously I don't know people in every single town or city, but I kind of get the impression that over here, Tinder is generally used more casually, whereas Hinge, you tend to encounter people that want something a bit more serious. So there, there's my top advice as, uh, <laughs> as the That tends maker. to be the perception. You know, that tends to be the perception over here. But like I said, I know people who met on Tinder and are married with a kid now. So like, you never know. Yeah, yeah, that, that is true. So don't give up hope on Tinder. You never know what could happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely. Yeah, so at least we ended on a, on a nice positive note there anyway. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to say I really appreciate your, your time. Um, I know it was a bit random, me reaching out, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan and admire the work that, uh, that you're doing and the likes of Dr. Hunt as well. So um, I look forward to seeing what happens going forwards with your studies. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. Yeah, same to you. Take care. Thanks for your time. Okay, you too. Bye. See you. Bye-bye.